I've been a doula for years and I've always loved pregnancy, birth, and babies. I've wanted a baby for so long and now my husband and I are finally financially and emotionally ready for a baby. My question is, can I have a natural birth if I can't even go through my period without taking pain medication? How do I get my baby to engage in the pelvis? I am 38 and a half weeks and the cervix is closed and my baby is high and not putting pressure on the fact that on no one wants the cesarean rate to be zero. We want to eliminate unnecessary cesarean sections and we have to allow room for the necessary ones. And it's hard. That's what makes this work hard. We don't get hell-bent on one way to birth. We can't get to it. Doubling is a relative risk. The actual risk of stillbirth is still very small. So we need to think about it in terms of those numbers. If you're intervening and, get, and putting your two cents in on everything, you will drive her crazy. She has to have leeway. That has to be the benefit that comes with all the work she's doing as the primary caregiver. She is the mother. <laughs> I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Welcome back, everyone, to another Q&A episode. Uh, Trisha, you said you had, what is it, a birth story you wanted to read to start off today? Um, it's, it's a short birth story, short anecdote of somebody's birth experience that they wanted to share with us because of the influence that the podcast had on how they processed it. This is a personal email as I had a rather crazy and traumatic birth yesterday morning, and I wanted to share my gratitude to you both for your podcast which I have listened to religiously during this pregnancy, as well as my birth story. I had planned for a water birth at the birth center after having two natural births. So this is her third baby. I've spent weeks listening to positive birth stories, your podcasts, hypnobirthing meditations, and grounding myself to let go of past fears. I woke up at 4.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning to mild cramping at 36 weeks plus six days. After a few minutes, I felt a gush, and I thought that perhaps my water had broken. I went to the bathroom and discovered that I was gushing blood. I knew that this was a sign that it needed immediate medical care. So I woke up my husband and called my midwife, who was assessing the level of blood, and told me to drive to the nearest hospital. I was terrified, but I went into a very calm state and kept repeating to myself, I am brave, I am strong, I can do this. My husband and I had our family at our house to be with our kids 10 minutes later, and we got into the car and drove to the hospital where I was diagnosed by ultrasound with a placental abruption. The baby's heart rate was good, and the doctor was willing to let me deliver vaginally as long as the baby's heart rate stayed that way. However, shortly after, the baby's heart rate dropped, and the doctor changed his mind quickly and told me I needed an immediate cesarean section. I believed and trusted him, but I was terrified. However, I kept repeating the mantra in my head, I am brave, I am strong, I can do this. I also remembered a recent podcast in which one of you said that the most important thing with a C-section is whether the mom believes she truly needs it. And I did believe it. I was rushed into the OR where I had to undergo general anesthesia, and I was terrified that I wouldn't wake up. When I did thankfully wake up, the first thing I noticed was my husband holding our sweet baby boy, and I immediately knew he was okay. My recovery has been so much harder than with my vaginal deliveries, and I cannot imagine anyone choosing this way to give birth. However, I have had nurses, midwives, and the doctor all come by to check on me and give me space to process what happened and tell me that it's okay to feel emotional 
about the trauma of what happened and letting go of what I thought my birth would look like. I feel extremely cared for and nurtured. They did tell me because I was so woozy from the medication that I wouldn't be able to hold the baby or breastfeed right away, but I did not take that as gospel, and I had my husband help me get out of the bed and position the baby and had him breastfeeding as soon as I was aware enough to take control. He didn't need to go to the NICU at all. He has strong lungs, and though he is small, he is extremely healthy and strong. Having said all this, I know I will have some emotional work to do over the next few months to integrate this experience into my life. I'm hoping that I can join your postpartum support group as I know I will need all the support I can get. Thank you again for opening my eyes so much. I took in so many messages from your show that stayed with me and helped me through a very difficult birth. An example of a necessary C-section, a necessary C-section. Right. You know, we did an event last night, Trisha, as you know, and this is an important distinction that we need to make because while we plan our births and we get excited to get educated for our births and envision the births that we want and intend, and all of those things are driving up the likelihood of having that kind of birth, it's important to remember that in the big picture, what we really want is a birth that we feel at peace with. And we often don't feel at peace right after it happens. It's actually a known phenomenon that it takes birth experiences about a year to process. You can have a phase like out of the blue in three or four months where you suddenly feel very angry or a lot of grief. Maybe suddenly in six months, you're crying about it and feeling more grief than you're feeling today. And it's like peeling off the layers of an onion. And it's almost like the psyche isn't ready to process birth all at once. I mean, I have seen this happen with all births, not just the births that are somewhat traumatic or deviate from the, the plan. But in that event you and I did last night, we talked about the fact that no one wants the cesarean rate to be zero. We want to eliminate unnecessary cesarean sections, and we have to allow room for the necessary ones. And it's hard. That's what makes this work hard. We don't right. get hell-bent on one way to birth. We can't get too attached or hell-bent on it. That's what makes the educational process complex, because you need to know when you really need it. Yeah. And fortunately, it sounds like she had a good team of people around her who really helped her to understand that this was an absolutely needed yep. C-section. And sometimes that is just how birth goes. We just have to relinquish and accept that. And thank goodness we have the resources we have when we need them. Sounds like she had a good provider because this provider did not make her go to an immediate cesarean when she walked in the door with a placental abruption. She still gave her the choice to labor for as long as the baby would tolerate it. So I think a testament to good care providers. And that's called a trial of labor. VBAC women need a trial of labor. Women who are in the pushing stage for a long time need to exhaust that possibility. They need to feel like they've really attempted everything because if not, they're going to be hard on themselves later in some cases. So that's an important thing providers have to allow us. All right. So what's up next? Yeah. So before we get into our questions for this week, we had some really fun conversations on Instagram. So first we were speaking to you guys about morning sickness. I think 85% of women experience morning sickness. Did you? I never did. Oh yeah. I oh did. my gosh. No, I didn't. But but not. it's not just vomiting. It's also just feeling, not just vomiting and feeling nauseous. It's also, to me, morning sickness is also the food aversion. I mean, yes. That's triggered. You see a food and it triggers an aversion and a feeling of being nauseous. And I had a lot of that with with my first and my third. Remember with my second, I had no clue I was pregnant for a very long time. Right. So I did not experience it that time around. And that's what's so interesting about it is that you can have it terribly with one pregnancy and not at all with another. 
You can have it for a couple of weeks. You can have it, unfortunately, sometimes lasting through the whole pregnancy. But the responses were just really funny because some of the things that made people feel better, I just cannot even possibly imagine. What were they? they? I don't think I saw the responses (laughs) to this. So the number one thing was ginger, ginger tea, ginger root, chewing on raw ginger, ginger gummies. Anyway, go for ginger first. Uh, We know a, a standard is vitamin B6. That's Uh, routinely offered for morning sickness and nausea. So that wasn't very unusual, but here we get into some funny ones. We had Sour Patch Kids. Oh, come on. Really? Mm -hmm. That's so specific. How do do people discover that? They try all the candy in the candy aisle? Well, no, I think that, you know, when you're in early pregnancy, you become so specific about what you crave and what you feel aversions to. So they probably were craving Sour Patch Kids because it actually made them feel better. What did the cave women have (laughs) instead of Sour Patch Kids? Limes, lemons. (laughs) Okay. Um, Pickles. That's like the standard, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about craving pickles in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Potato chips, salt. Potato chips. Really? All right. So surprised to hear all this. Yeah, I can see that one. Pink and only pink electrolyte (laughs) freezer pops. Wait, wait. Pink and only pink what? Electrolyte. Electrolyte freezer pops. What's a freezer pop? (laughs) What's a freezer? Like a popsicle. (laughs) Oh, it's called a freezer pop. In some places. Isn't freezer implied? Don't we just <laughs> say popsicles? Is from the Midwest? <laughs> oh, okay. It's going to be like sneakers versus, what's the other word? Um, tennis shoes. Tennis shoes, right. You, you knew that. <laughs> All athletic shoes are tennis shoes in the Midwest. I, 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 it, you know how uncomfortable I was when I moved out here and had to start eventually saying sneakers? Look at you cringing at the word sneakers. I still cringe when I say it. I didn't know you looked down on the word. We th- well, we think here in the Northeast that the word tennis shoes is just funny. We don't only tennis play shoes tennis. Are specific to tennis, right? It's not like that's the only activity we ever engage in in our lives. <laughs> um, anyway, I think freezer pops might be Canadian or something. But the the pink part is only pink. Only the pink. Well, I like pink ones worked for her. It's so like it had to do with the color more than the flavor. Okay, crackers. That's very typical and very common. Crackers are a great way to prevent morning sickness if you. My midwife used to always tell me, keep crackers by the bedside, eat them before you get out of bed in the morning, because getting up in the morning on an empty stomach can really trigger the nausea. So put the crackers in in your mouth, get a little something in your tummy before you get out of bed. Hmm. Uh, Cinnamon. That doesn't surprise me. I don't know why it doesn't, but it doesn't. Mashed potatoes? Really? Well, maybe maybe that's kind of like the cracker thing. Filler. Maybe. Maybe they're a little salty. Buffalo bites. I don't even know what those are. Some sort What's a buffalo bite? I think it must be some sort of buffalo spicy flavored bite? meat bite. <laughs> meat bite. <laughs> uh, meat bites are great, said the vegetarian. I think she said buffalo bites from Costco. So I'm going to have bites. to look for those. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait a minute. Um, is, do people eat buffalo meat? Is that what we're talking about? Or is that just a term oh, for like maybe. another kind no, of meat? No, people do eat buffalo bison. Yeah. I, th- I just assumed it was buffalo flavored, like like you would get a buffalo f- um, spicy chicken wing. I'm sorry. Go it's on. like a flavor. <laughs> I never met a chicken wing until I went to undergrad in Pennsylvania. You remember that, right? So <laughs> <laughs> when you order hot wings, they ask if you want <laughs> buffalo or some other weird flavor. Oh, okay. I always want the, you know, the buffalo flavor. Of course you do. Yeah. And the last one was peppermint tea, which makes sense. Perfect. That works. Um, Peppermint oil, peppermint tea. It's helpful. Fun. So that was kind of fun. Do you have the answers to um, what food aversions people had? Because I found that really interesting. And I was stunned at how many people said chicken. 
It was so yes, common. It was like 25% common. of everybody said mm-hmm. chicken. Yeah. I actually can remember feeling having aversion to chicken in my first two. Um, let me pull up that one really quickly and read some of these. Okay. Aversions. Red meat. And I love this. This was someone who, who felt better eating Cheez-Its. And she wrote, so what made her feel better? She wrote Cheez-Its. And then what were your aversions? Her response was red meat. <laughs> Pretty much anything besides Cheez-Its. <laughs> <laughs> A pregnancy of Cheez-Its, you know? Uh, bacon. That was another common one. Bacon, yellow, and white onions. Red onions are okay. It's so weird, right? I mean, why? And garlic. I think that is so funny. That makes sense. Um, chicken. Bacon again. Fruit and cereal. Uh, chicken to fruit? <laughs> yeah. Coffee. Typical. One person, one woman wrote anything healthy was her food aversion. That had to be <laughs> That's stressful That's kind of how I her. felt in my first pregnancy. I wanted yeah. hot dogs and mac and cheese and chocolate milk. Another one wrote meat with an exclamation point. Chicken and ground beef. This woman wrote pork except bacon, peanut butter, and <laughs> Sprite. An aversion to Sprite. But to Sprite, I, mean, I bet. But one. like, I guess 7-Up was okay, you know? Um, eggs. Definitely. Tomatoes and coffee. Pesto tortellini. She must have eaten a lot of pesto tortellini before or something. <laughs> I just love it. I love the specificity, you know. And then cravings were really fun. Uh, women's cravings were popsicles and ice cream, diet Coke. I normally don't drink soda, avocado and other fruits, sushi and root beer, plain Greek yogurt with blueberries, olives, sourdough bread, and sweet potatoes. But not all together, please. <laughs> And then look at this one, pesto. The, the one thing that the other woman had to avoid, this one wrote pesto was her craving. <laughs> I wish she wrote pesto tortellini. <laughs> Bacon for baby number one. Chocolate malts for baby number two. Mm. Frozen fruit, ice, and sushi. A lot of sushi. Yep, I um, had that too, pickles. sushi. She wrote hot dogs were my craving. They normally gross me out completely. S- same, same. <laughs> um, carbs, all thing carbs. Indian food. Lemonade, Curry. of course, See? that makes sense. Skittles, gummy candies, yep. uh, pineapple all the time, pepperoni pizza and ranch dressing, mm, salt and carbs, boxed macaroni and cheese, not homemade, exclamation point. Right there, craft all the way. She, she wrote <laughs> not homemade, powdered cheese product only. Yes, <laughs> exactly. With a laughing face, a vinegar and salty food, peanut butter and jelly only at 1 a.m. And Reese's blizzards. No rhyme or reason to any of this. Yep, just, just kind of fun, kind of fun to talk about. <laughs> All right, what do we have up next? Okay, so the next thing we talked about um, on a little bit more of a serious note was what people are struggling with most with their partners in the early postpartum. Getting enough alone time. At night after the kids go to bed is our only time, and of course at that time we are both totally exhausted. The pillow is the sexiest thing in the house by far, <laughs> yeah. for a while For there. a while, yep. for a while. He doesn't pay attention to the baby or really anything the way I do. I think a lot of women feel that way. But at the same time, who could possibly match your level of care and attentiveness to the baby right now? That's right. It's a a tough expectation to meet. And when your partner is married to someone who's so attentive and does all the research and all the decisions and finds the right pediatrician and looks into the best solution for this and the best approach for that, they consciously or subconsciously can relax because you're running things so well. I mean, I know that dynamic happens in relationships. It's a bit meant to be that way. A mother's brain is is hardwired to be 
extra alert and attentive to her baby. It's, right. it's meant to be that way, at least in the beginning. So we are maybe putting a little too much, too much expectation on our partners to have them meet that level of attention and, and care, at least in the beginning. And, and right. And we can, we can read too much into seeing the partner being a little bit less attached and it can hurt. It can hurt, but you don't know how they'll, they'll be with a seven-year-old, with a teenager, with an adult child, and you might really see them thrive in the other stages if you don't see them thriving now. So something to keep in mind, your partner is going to keep changing because your child is going to keep changing and you will too. And we each are going to excel at certain stages of the parenting. And when one is down a little bit, you hope the other one's up. Right. (laughs) That's how it's meant to go. Right. Like a balance beam. Seesaw. (laughs) Not a balance beam. This is a good one. She says, we can't agree on bed sharing. I want to, but he does not. And I am exclusively breastfeeding. I mean, I'd like to know why he doesn't. And this is one of those things. I'm very biased. If she's breastfeeding and she's the primary caregiver, that's it. She gets to say. She makes the decision. (laughs) I'm with you on that. Yeah. Now, if he's concerned about safety, then you guys need to look at the research and and find that it is very safe when done responsibly. It's easy to do it responsibly. But what's the reason? Also, if he's uncomfortable with it, maybe until he gets comfortable with it, he sleeps somewhere else. Yeah, it might be about the room in the bed. We'd have to see the reason for it. Yeah, I'm biased. (laughs) But like once you're bed sharing and they're nursing while you're getting your sleep and you don't have to keep getting up and down, oh my gosh, it's safer. It makes you drive safer later that day because you're more rested. And it's wonderful for the baby. Safely sleeping near our babies when you're exclusively breastfeeding is protective against SIDS. It's Mm -hmm. known fact. Mm -hmm. Right. So take that. (laughs) Right. All right. So that's it for our Instagram shares for today. Fun stuff. I want to just say one more thing on that topic because we, you know, we talk with postpartum women so much and there are times where you and your, your spouse or your partner are going to disagree about how to do something. And let's put aside safety questions, right? Like for example, if one of you is more conservative about a safety thing, I think the more conservative parents should always rule. If one thinks something isn't safe and one thinks something is safe, you should err on the side of the more nervous parent who wants to keep things safer. Like that, that's, that's fine. But for all other things, I think it can't be a 50, 50 decision. I think there has to be more weight on that primary caregiver because she's going to go crazy if she's taking care of this baby 90% of the time. And then her partner comes along and goes, I don't want to do it that way. I don't think we should. I mean, we had a mom just talk to us about her husband giving her guilt about weaning. I mean, that's just not, it's not his decision to make when it's her body and she knows what she's willing to do and what's working for her. And, and how far she can go with it. What? Yeah. You just both have to agree she's going to make most of the decisions because you will drive her crazy if you're intervening and, get, and putting your two cents in on everything. You mm-hmm. will drive her crazy. She has to have leeway. That has to be the benefit that comes with all the work she's doing as the primary caregiver. She is the mother. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean it's and I think, if the, I think if the, if the other parent or the father is the primary caregiver, I say the exact same thing. I've known a few dads mm-hmm. who are in my classes who she kept her job. He stayed home. I would absolutely say the same for him. Don't drive yes. him crazy. Let him own this role. There are certain decisions you need to make together. 
Obviously, if one of you is uncomfortable with the pediatrician, that's a showstopper. That's not okay. But with the little daily decisions, I mean, come on. If she wants to bed share because she's bleary-eyed, and she has to make that decision, I think. It's like any job you do. If somebody else is micromanaging your job, that's never going to feel good, and that's never going to help you have a good relationship. Exactly. All right. So let's jump into our questions. Okay. Here's the first question. I've been a doula for years, and I've always loved pregnancy, birth, and babies. I've wanted a baby for so long, and now my husband and I are finally financially and emotionally ready for a baby. I've always wanted to have a natural birth at home, but I'm starting to doubt my ability to tolerate the pain. I have a low pain tolerance. I get chronic headaches and have extreme period pain, so I take medication for that often. However, I know that I'm strong and can overcome anything. I even trained and ran for my first marathon to prove to myself that I'm physically and mentally, that I physically and mentally have the endurance and strength to give birth naturally. My question is, can I have a natural birth if I can't even go through my period without taking pain medication? I plan on having one, maybe even two doulas and taking hypnobirthing during pregnancy with my husband, even though I already know most of this information. Thank you so much. Any advice you have would be greatly appreciated. So the answer I, I is have, yes, you can have a natural birth. <laughs> y- yes. And here's, here's the main thing I want to say. Of course, this is a very common type of question I get as a, as a hypnobirthing instructor. Women sometimes sign up for the class and first they want to know, like, is it okay if I don't plan on having a natural birth? Of course it is. The goal is to be calm and in control no matter what kind of birth you want. However, this doula in her training has become convinced this is a matter of overcoming it and enduring and I can do this. And that's not ever what we're looking for. We want you to relax into this. Just trust that at any moment, if you feel you want an epidural, just have the epidural. Your goal is to feel good and calm and at peace, not you can do this. You've got this. I I don't give that message because what if she chooses an epidural? Did it mean she didn't have this? Does it mean she couldn't do this? The idea here, tell yourself, I'm birthing on my terms. As long as I'm comfortable, I'm going to keep planning this birth every moment by moment, planning this to be a natural birth. If at any point I change my mind, I'm going to change my mind. What if you go into labor at 1.30 in the morning and you've had two hours of sleep? That's not the same as having a full night's rest. So what we want to put our focus on is how you will respond to it and allow yourself the freedom to change course or to have intervention if you want to during the birth. Just take the pressure off yourself is what I'm thinking. Or because she's very used to having very uncomfortable periods, labor might not actually feel that different to her. I mean, I have definitely attended births where women who have had very painful periods throughout their life say labor did was just like a little step up. The pain of your period is something you don't want to experience. It's something you want to make go away. You probably have to go to work that day. You probably have to get up and do things. You don't need to tolerate that pain because you have options. Good point. She wants a natural birth. She wants to have an unmedicated natural birth. And so it's a very different mindset. Yeah, it's a good point, Trisha. Yep. It's it's not something you need to mask. It's something you need to embrace. And I bet, would love to hear her experience after her birth, but I bet she does really well with her birth. And she's planning to take hypnobirthing, which of course I'm happy to hear. I think that's terrific. She might even take my hypnobirthing class. Trisha, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, love to work with this woman. I know. That would be really great. Then Then we'd get to know the birth story too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I just think this notion of I'm strong enough to do this. 
I can overcome anything. It's setting the stage for experiencing birth as something we're meant to conquer. And just know that the more relaxed you are through your labor, the more comfortable you're going to be. What you're going to feel in labor isn't predestined. Labor sensations change based on your position. They they change based on your thoughts. They change based on your emotions, the support in the room. Water makes you more comfortable. Even listening to water reduces pain receptors in the body. We just learned that in episode 100 with Barbara Harper, founder of Water Birth International. There are so many things that move the needle into a more comfortable birth. I, you know, one of the most common reasons that women do choose an epidural is when labor goes on for a really long time. And having trained for a marathon and having been able to run and complete a marathon, she clearly has endurance. And endurance is very helpful if you have a long labor. But we hope to hear the birth story. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Oh, so here, a little bit of a similar question. The next one says, I am worried that I won't have an easy birth unless I work out in my pregnancy. Is this true? What do I need to do? I mean... That I find that to be an interesting belief as well. Did your ancestors train? Did your great-grandmother, let's say, around 1900, did she train? Or did she just cook all day and do her chores? So careful of your belief system. I had a mom in class years ago who shared the first day of class. She always believed she wouldn't be able to give birth. And I said, you know, why is that? What, where is it coming from? And she said, because I'm not flexible. And I was like, uh, that, that's okay. That's you don't okay. need to do the splits. You don't need to be <laughs> flexible. You don't need to train. There, there are things you can do that will really benefit you. But just come from a more, I think, a more positive belief system. Like everything I'm doing is going to make this easier for me rather than if I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to give birth. I think being healthy and uh, active in your lifestyle is only going to help you in birth. I mean, that's just kind of a given. But do you need to specifically train and do squats and stair walks and other birth-related exercises? Some people would tell you yes. I mean, there are a lot of really good people out there in the birth world, like Dula Krisha. She has a whole program around training for birth. So it's only going to help you, yes. But if you do not train for birth, it absolutely does not mean that you're not going to have an easy birth. If you aren't an exercise person but you do want to do something, yoga is probably the best thing you could do. Oh, yes, I completely agree with that. That's the best thing you can do. So one funny thing, this probably is very anti-hypnobirthing, but one thing I can remember my midwife telling me when I was first pregnant was um, (laughs) to hold an ice cube in your hand for a full minute. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever heard this? We got a question about that. Remember? We got did? No, remember we got- No, that was about a comb. I know, like squeeze a comb. I think it's the same. Yeah, I've heard of techniques also in yoga classes where you do a repetitive action until it kind of burns. And I think that's cool. I mean, can you stay calm and in control? Hold an ice cube. Yeah, it's very challenging. Yeah, until your whole hand goes numb and it's fine. Then it's like having an epidural (laughs) in your hand. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) but no, that's fine. Practice not reacting. Yeah, I'm not sure it really prepares you for labor, but it's a it's an exercise of the mind. It does prepare you because what you want to practice is not responding to what you're feeling physically. Right. Just separating it. It's very powerful. And then you can go f- so much beyond it, which is what we do in hypnobirthing. Now it's like, well, where do I put my mind? We don't want to hold the ice cube and be like, oh my God, oh my God, it's so cold. Okay, I'm not going to react. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to keep my, rela-. you know, you want to like visualize, truly relax into it. Could you smile and relax into it? 
human beings can do that if they're determined to. And that's, those are the kind of techniques you can learn in hypnobirthing very easily. They're just everyday techniques for everybody. All right, next. So give that a go. Give that a go. How do I get my baby to engage in the pelvis? I am 38 and a half weeks and the cervix is closed and my baby is high and not putting pressure on my cervix. Any tips on what I should do? (laughs) Be patient. Wait, wait and be patient. It's very normal for the baby not to engage until labor begins. So the babies do tend to stay high. The cervix tends to stay closed um, until really closer to the time of birth. And 38 weeks, you know, you might still have three weeks of pregnancy. So I would not worry about this. I would not lose sleep over this. Um, Try not to recline too much. Forward leaning is the best suggestion. So if you are reclining a lot uh, on a couch, you know, leaning back on a couch or sitting in a car a lot or sitting at your desk, um, you want to try to get away from those positions and sit on a birth ball and sit in any position that gets you a little bit more forward leaning that's not necessarily going to make your baby engage in the pelvis, but it is going to help your baby to rotate more into the anterior position, which will be more helpful. What are your thoughts on going past 42 weeks? Um, yeah. So my thoughts on this are that the first things I would ask is your baby doing okay. And are you doing okay? And if you both are doing okay, and there are no signs of distress for baby or signs, warning signs for mom of in late pregnancy, then I think it's fine. The concern, of course, is that the risk of stillbirth goes up after 42 weeks. And it does, in fact, double after 42 weeks. But you have to think about that. Um, doubling is a relative risk. The actual risk of stillbirth is still very small. So we need to think about it in terms of those numbers. So at 41 weeks... Out of 10,000 pregnant women, 17 of them will experience a stillbirth. At 42 weeks out of 10,000 women, that number doubles to 32. But that's still an extremely small amount of people. And, you know, for years, the World Health Organization, up until recently, now I think there's a lot of pressure from the medical community to back off of this recommendation. But for years, they recommended not inducing a day before 42 weeks. And you still would have the choice at 42 weeks. What was interesting is with that recommendation, most providers in the United States just ignored that and said, well, I induce at 41 weeks. Well, I induce at 39 weeks. And it didn't matter that the World Health Organization said no sooner than 42 weeks. Around the same time, about 15 years ago or so, in the Netherlands, they also heard the World Health Organization recommendation of inducing no sooner than 42 weeks, and they too ignored the recommendation. And they, as a national policy, induced at 43 weeks. And at the same time period, as we were becoming number one in maternal mortality in the world, in the industrialized world, they were number one in maternal safety. So it just puts a lot of different angles on this discussion. Yeah. There's no right or wrong answer. It doesn't mean don't induce at 42 weeks. It's complex. We don't know the right thing to do, but don't go into a fear-based state and react if it doesn't feel like the right thing for you. If everything is fine, let it go. I think, and ask your intuition, because when we have heard, I mean, I, I hate to even say the word stillbirth, it's the most horrifying word, but when we have like our stillbirth episode, episode number 14, I mean, how many women said, they just said, I knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. So I think no one can tap into that as well as you. You know when things are safe. You know when you need to take action. You know when you don't need to. Um, so be careful of getting jerked around by all the advice. You know, Don't listen to us too heavily. Don't listen to your provider too heavily. Take it all in. There's no right or wrong. There are different approaches 
globally, it's a very difficult decision. You really yeah. have to ultimately check in with yourself. These are hard decisions, but there's no absence of risk any week of pregnancy, whether we intervene or choose not to intervene, there's no absence of all risk. So that's why there's no right or wrong answer. And these decisions are hard. And really importantly, make sure your dates are correct. I mean, there's so many um, inaccurate due dates based on uh, you know, not knowing when we conceive, not having regular menstrual periods. So it is really important to know if you're actually 42 weeks, go back and double check those dates, make sure they're right. Yes. And you're going to take it day by day at this stage. You're not going to say, you know, I decline induction at 42 weeks and I'm not, I'm, you know, waiting till 44. Absolutely. <laughs> you're going to make an assessment daily on this. That's so right. yep. that's where tuning into your body is really important, as you said. I think we probably can squeeze one more in. Well, I mean, I can answer this one quickly. What's the best way to manage transition? It totally freaks me out. Don't even worry about it. But just if you're freaked out, if you're scared about giving birth, take a hypnobirthing class or find something that works for you. You know, um, if you're deep enough in yoga, um, meditation practices. I mean, I, you know, I'm so pro hypnobirthing because it comes with so much other evidence-based information, but just trust in the tools that you're going to practice to keep your calm. There's nothing to fear about transition. I had no idea when I was in transition. Just let's let go of those notions completely. I also would say that when you, if you do notice transition, because some people do feel a really strong sense of labor progressing quickly, just ride that feeling. That's your labor progressing. The next step is pushing. And that's a whole different feeling. So when you hit that maximum peak intensity, and a lot of women will know they're in transition because they start vomiting or um, shaking, or they do have some physical signs of it. Not everybody, not everybody. Some people just go right through and labor kind of feels the same all the way. But when you get to that point, know you're close. Know the next step is working with your body to push your baby out and let that bring you comfort as opposed to feeling fearful of it. Okay, last one. Here we go. I am overwhelmed by the idea of writing my birth story. Do you have any pointers on the best way to do it or how to get started? Just put down some words on paper. <laughs> I think we can really, really get ourselves worked up into a writer's block because, you know, sharing our birth story is one of the most important stories that we may ever write. And so we want to get it down on paper perfectly but it's a work in progress. And if you just get some feelings out, you just get some of the key details down on paper, you know, maybe what time you went into labor, what time the baby was born, who was there. Um, the sooner you do it, the more inspired you'll be to sort of elaborate on that birth story. Because I, I, I think it's really easy for us to not do it. And time, the farther we get away from the birth experience, sometimes the harder it can be to write it. Eventually, sometimes we get to a point where we don't write it. I know that happened to me. Um, and I wish now that I could just go back and have at least those details, a few of those details. So just put something on paper. Yeah, and I think the easiest thing to do, the most important thing is to capture the details as soon as possible, because I wrote mine in detail after my daughter was born. I think after each of them was born, of course, my son's was written and published. So I know I wrote that one, but I remember specifically writing my daughter's. And I went back and read it a couple of years later and my jaw dropped because I completely had forgotten a host of details. I d it was like reading someone else's story. So I would say if you feel overwhelmed, voice record it because you'll just chat and you'll go on and on and on and on and on and then worry about fine tuning it and writing a beautiful version of it later, but capture the details. So just voice record it. 
It'll be I fun. I mean, isn't this what they say when, if you're a writer, you just put the pen to paper and you just put out whatever comes to your mind. That's how we get past the writer's block. Just start somewhere and then come back to it later. It does not have to be the final story the first time you write it down. Yeah. Great. All right. That's a wrap on today's Q&A. Thank you for being here with us. If you enjoyed our podcast, please remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or even better, share an episode or two with a friend. If you don't already follow us, please follow us on Instagram, or you can contact us through our website and review show notes on downtobirthshow.com. And please remember this information is made available to you for informational and educational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. me that it's okay to feel emotionable <laughs> emotionable what kind you, of word you, is that you, you, <laughs> you just hand me those outtakes you're the best oh my god emotional okay. like where, that word has never come out of my mouth <laughs> i don't even understand it's not even a word okay <sighs> i was so into the story emotionable okay why does that happen? It's just so funny. I have no idea why that happens. <laughs> Crossed wires. Okay. <gasps>